This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the risk trade, as you just heard from Charlie, all thanks to the rapid increase of the coronavirus and cases specifically outside of China. Questions continue to linger about how exactly the virus is spread. Infections are now emerging in people who have not traveled to China or come into contact with confirmed cases. So we want to have some clarity about where we are in the virus and what the outbreak and the continued outbreak of cases outside of China, what it all means. Let's uh, bring back Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Senior Scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, uh, the Bloomberg Public uh, School of Health is... uh, Um, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Michael Bloomberg, of course, too, a Democratic presidential candidate. So, Dr. Nezzo, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. So how do you read this news and what it says about where we are in the spread of the virus? Yeah, I think the reports that we heard over the weekend of um, rise in cases outside in countries outside of China and among people who haven't traveled to China, um, while obviously worrisome from a public health standpoint are not um, unexpected, given what we've learned about the virus so far. Uh, We have known for a while now that this virus is capable of spreading quite quickly and quite silently, which uh, makes it difficult to know at any one point where in the world it's transmitting, so that we're seeing uh, cases in new countries um, kind of tracks with what we've expected. And so when do you start to get more worried at this point, uh, Dr. Nuzzo? Because I have to say, you know, these Italian cases and everything that's going on in South Korea, I do think that is giving people a little bit more pause. And as you say, sort of new countries, not a strong link, maybe any link uh, with some of these cases directly back to China or to, to Wuhan. What's the next sort of worrisome step, just to be honest? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we've long suspected is that a virus like this that spreads as quickly as it does and as silently as it does, that it would likely turn up in many parts of the globe. And that's why you'll probably hear a lot of discussion as of late as to whether or not we're in a pandemic. There's a bit of a disagreement among uh, public health officials as to whether we're in one now, but I think it's hard to argue that we won't be in one at one point, regardless if you want to call what we're seeing Uh, now a pandemic. And so what that means is that um, countries should expect to see cases. And what that will also mean is that they will need to shift their focus from just trying to stop the virus at their borders to thinking about how best to protect their people from the virus that they will experience. Um, This situation is obviously quite worrisome given the large numbers of deaths that were reported. One of the things I think we still need to work out is how many infections are out there, and then to hold that um, in balance with the deaths that are reported. Uh, It could very well be that there are many, many more infections out there, which would bring down our death rate calculations. Um, But nonetheless, it's a situation that warrants uh, concern and, and preparedness by governments. Well, and what's interesting, though, and and I want to just challenge you a little bit, if I may, Dr. Nezzo, is that, you know, the markets and investors are certainly reading this as something much worse than they had thought maybe on Saturday or on Friday, even though we did see stocks lower on Friday, but that wasn't surprising ahead of the weekend. So are we misreading this, this spread? Is this, you know, from a medical perspective, did you expect that it was going to spread like it is at this point? 
Yeah, I did, and um, I have long thought that there has been a lot of hope, um, and I think some of this hope has been echoed by government leaders that this virus could be stopped, um, that you know that China's uh, very drastic actions would stop transmission there, and that countries would respond by preventing people from traveling for China, and that that would just put an end to the virus. Those were methods that worked um, in 2003 when we had the SARS epidemic, but this virus is quite different than SARS, and it's spreading much more quickly and um, with mild, many milder cases, which for me has always signified that it would be very difficult to contain. That means stopping the spread of the virus entirely. I have long thought that we would likely see a global spread and that we should be putting our emphasis on how best to uh, minimize the impacts from, from the virus. Well, and Dr. Nuzzi, you're, you're bringing up a really interesting point that, that candidly I had, I had not really thought through in, in all of these discussions, which is, I guess, if there are many more cases than, than maybe previously anticipated, maybe it's not as dangerous in, in, in a way that we look at it not as, you know, this sort of deadly thing that's sweeping across countries, but as something that people can be treated for and that, as you say, sort of countries need to get their arms around treating rather than containing. Yeah, I think we need to get our arms around this because it will um, determine what measures we take. Uh, for instance, China has taken very aggressive measures, uh, which um, in my view has um, potentially exacerbated the toll of the epidemic there just in terms of the social and economic impacts of it. But obviously populations' willingness to be um, uh, subjected to those measures might be higher if we thought the virus the virus were as deadly as it just seems to be just based on the raw numbers that are reported. Um, but anyway, regardless of what the true uh, you know case um, fatality percentages wind up being, um, just the fact that there are so many deaths reported and so many um, hospitalizations and critically ill people, that will be a struggle for a number of countries. Uh, we know that every flu season, um, hospitals you know, across the world are, are stressed and then layering on top of this a virus that could produce significant levels of um, severe illness, critical illness, and deaths that will be quite challenging. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Dr. Nuzzo, thank you so much. Jennifer Nuzzo, uh, doctor, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. And of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies. Of course, uh, all of that home to Bloomberg News, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV. Michael Bloomberg, of course, a candidate as well for the Democratic presidential nomination. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Steep losses indeed. Definitely, though, off our lows of the session so far. And it all has to do with those increasing concerns about the coronavirus. Uh, the worry, of course, as we just heard from Charlie, impacting the financial markets. Always great, though, to check in with members of the corporate community when we have a situation like this, especially one that is very much involved in the global supply chain, including <laughs> the Apple supply chain. In fact, roughly two-thirds of this company's revenues come from Apple. Dr. Jalal Bagirli, is CEO at Dialogue Semiconductor. He joins us on the phone from London. Dr. Bagheerly, great to have you here with Jason Kelly and myself. Um, I do want to start, we know you did Hi, a deal Carol. recently. Hi, and we'll get to that in a moment, but talk to us about this virus and how it's changing and impacting uh, what's going on at your company. Um, so uh, I think uh, I'll make uh, comments about what, what we see. So like uh, pretty much all semiconductor companies, the supply chain um, for us and uh, 
customers that we uh, supply tends to go through Asia and particularly China. Mm-hmm. So, so it's no great surprise that uh, these are affected um, in terms of um, you know capacity and, and operation. Um, and I think uh, you know it is a it is a tragic event in terms of the effect on people and uh, and the whole area um, and. Uh, from a disease point of view, but from a business and the operation point of view, I think we see um, we've seen a um, uh, number of uh, uh, manufacturing contract manufacturers of you know phones and uh, electronic products are gradually uh, operating back uh, at maybe 30, 40 percent capacity with uh, much reduced people, i.e., they don't have all their workers back at the factories. Um, but I do think you have all your workers? Every, do, you, do you have all your workers at your factories as a result? Manufacture, mm-hmm. We don't manufacture. We, we, are, we, are, we do design and marketing and okay. uh, we manage our manufacturing through outsourcing. So we don't have direct sort of factory um, operation. But, but we deal with factories all the time every day. And, uh, and we see the capacities are coming back uh, in terms of our customers' uh, factories. Um, every every week we see improvement. So so I think in a few weeks my guess is from a business operation point of view those factories will be getting very close to normal operation. All right. So Dr. Bigarly, let, let's talk about the deal that you did because obviously amidst all of this uh, you're still creating partnerships and and uh, and doing some some M and A work. What does this uh, deal with Adesto do for you? Right. So Adesto uh, is a um, uh, listed company on NASDAQ. They are um, a uh, IoT, uh, pure play IoT business uh, play. So what it does for us is um, increase our exposure to the uh, very attractive industrial uh, market for us. We've been um, entering this market recently, about a few months ago, with a small acquisition of a company called Creative Chips. So Adesto gives us scale in that market. Um, and providing us with technology for uh, uh, Internet of Things as, as it relates to industrial buildings, smart buildings, smart cities type application, both in terms of silicon chips as well as uh, cloud connectivity solution platforms that we can offer our customers. And so more deals to come, do, do you think? Are you in a mode where, where you want to be more aggressive on the combination front? I think, you know, we have always... Um, uh, a pipeline of uh, targets that uh, is uh, under under review, and, and uh, we look at a number of uh, angles clearly before we, we, we make any move on uh, a target. You know, from a from a fit, strategic fit, shareholder value, culture, bunch of other uh, um, items that we look at. So we do have other targets to look at, but you know, currently we've just closed on uh, Adesto and we're very pleased with that and very excited about uh, integrating that company when the deal actually closes. So one last question, just got about 30 seconds, so I have to ask you to be quick. I just want to go back to the virus. So based on what you're seeing, because I'm assuming that you saw obviously a little bit of an impact as the virus got worse, you're saying you would you would make the conclusion that things are getting better because you're seeing kind of business pick up again in terms of some of your clients who manufacture and just got about 30 seconds here. Yes, I think we, we see over the next few weeks, you know, more and more factories are telling us that they have more people coming back and they're opening more of their branches. You know, sometimes they have multiple uh, factories. 
Some of them have been open, some have been shut so far, but as they get decontaminated and the workers come back from other parts of China, they, they, they add more capacity. All right, going to leave it on that note. Um, we really appreciate it. Dr. Bagheerly, Dr. Jalal Bagheerly, he is Chief Executive Officer at Dialogue Semiconductor, uh, joining us on this Monday on the phone from London and, of course, uh, giving us some great insight in terms of the virus. When you feel like your flavor is gone, the way All right, so this next story is a little bit different. We've been talking a lot about the virus and will continue to, but a fascinating feature in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, You can read it online on Bloomberg.com and via the Bloomberg Terminal. A pistachio war between the U.S. and Iran. Mark Champion joins us. He's a senior reporter for international affairs for Bloomberg Joining us on the phone from London, we appreciate him uh, giving us a long day. And Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Mark, this is a little bit, as Carol Master might say, of a like, wait, what kind of story? Tell us what's going on in the world of pistachios. Well, yeah, I mean, the the, the U.S. Uh, you know, we all know that the U.S. and Iran have been at each other for uh, decades, basically since the revolution in in nineteen seventy uh, in nineteen seventy nine. Um, but uh, perhaps a little less known is that the uh, you know one aspect of that contest has been over the pistachio nut, uh, which Iran for you know literally thousands of years, more than a thousand years, perhaps more than two. Uh, was basically a, a monopoly producer of, um, and it exported them. And then uh, at the time of the revolution, saw this as a big source of hard currency and very successfully developed a, a big industry exporting, you know, this is a billion-dollar-plus industry uh, exporting uh, nuts to the rest of the world. Um, but the U.S. Uh, got into the act um, in, you know, the first crop in 1976. Um, and since then, uh, California has, uh, been, you know, expanding its uh, uh, production enormously uh, with the help of, uh, you know, bans, variously bans and uh, heavy duties of 241% uh, on uh, pistachio nuts from Iran at various times um, and has now overtaken Iran as the, the largest producer in the world. What's gone wrong for Iran on this front, Mark? Well, all kinds of things. I mean, first, you know, one, there's no doubt that the uh, sanctions policy, you know, broader financial sanctions that uh, made it difficult to invest, you know, that these things uh, had an impact. Uh, Secondly, um, you you have climate change, uh, no different for Iran than than California, except that uh, Iran has been uh, relied, even in, you know, the the, the earliest days, uh, it relied on a an ancient form of underground uh, canaling uh, to bring the water to the pistachio fields, which tend to be to the groves, which tend to be in um, in very arid areas. It needs a hot climate, it needs cool winters, um, but so you have very specific uh, climate conditions needed, and tends to be dry in those areas. And so they they always brought the water from underground. But since the revolution, uh, one of the promises of the revolution was that you know ordinary farmers would be able to have access to as much water as they wanted, and they've been drilling wells, uh, you know, unregistered wells across the country and sucking out with electric pumps instead of the old systems, 
uh, as much water as they can. So that's, you know, that's the, the second item. And then the third is simply um, a failure of governance and, uh, and planning and just uh, general efficiency so that, you know, since, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. started producing, they both used to yield about the same amount of pistachios per, per uh, hectare, um, back in the 70s, but now the U.S. Uh, produces more than three times as many pistachios per hectare. The Iranians haven't improved at all. Hey, Mark, did you do taste testing as part of uh, your reporting for this article? Well, every time I, I have gone to Iran, um, I've you know I've eaten a lot of pistachios. They are fantastic, and the Iranian pistachios are really, really very good. So it was, you know, really striking to me that you know last year, the last sort of growing year, which goes across, you know, was would have been 1918 to 19, I mean, 20, 2018 to 2019, um, their crop simply collapsed. Um, it was the result of four years of drought, and it, it virtually disappeared. Um, and uh, you know, this year they've had you know heavy rains, floods, and so on, and they've got a crop back, um, but it's a rather poor quality. And, and in the past, the Iranians were enormously proud that their pistachio nuts they thought were better uh, than those produced by California. But uh, this year, at least, not true. Well, and I feel like, Mark, you know, somewhere Sean Don and our trade guru is, spy- <laughs> is smiling because it's like this is the trade war. You know, th- this is sort of global trade at its best and worst to, to some extent. Where does it go from here? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, basically, uh, there's no reason to think that Iran is going to uh, turn this around. Um, they, you know, the, the climate change isn't going to get any better. Um, the governance doesn't look like getting any better. Um, and certainly U.S. sanctions aren't going to get any better for any time soon. So uh, there's no reason to think that's going to turn around. Um, and as a result of that, uh, the, there's, there's a global trade organization for nuts. And, and they believe that there's about a 10 to 15 percent shortage in the, of supply in the market for global demand, in part because um, the Iranians simply haven't been able to, to grow their crops. So uh, now what you see is a lot of primarily Iranian farmers, uh, exiles and so on, who have experience of growing pistachios from Iran, um, going to different countries, new countries, to see if they can uh, develop crops in these other countries. Uh, I spoke, uh, went to visit a farm in, in, in Georgia where uh, a, a, an Iranian, you know, someone who left after the revolution, um, is now uh, developing a, a, a big farm. Um, but it's also happening in uh, in Ukraine, in Azerbaijan, in right. uh, uh, you know, in Central Asia. Uh, so you know, the, the people are, in Australia too, Spain. They're all trying to develop. Well, it's one of those great Business Week stories where you really, you know, just kind of take it for granted, something like pistachios, but you realize that there's a lot more as you dig into it uh, in terms of what's going on in the market and certainly when it comes to uh, trade. Mark Champion, thank you so much. Senior reporter for International Affairs at Bloomberg News on the phone from London. Jill Weber, thank you as well. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our interactive broker studio here in New York. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. 
on Bloomberg Radio. Now, the coronavirus, it has spread to more than 30 countries. South Korea reporting a jump in infections and Italy locking down an area of 50,000 people near Milan. And yet the most reported cases and deaths still in China, which has many asking questions about the state of health care in China. Andy Brown is Bloomberg New Economy editorial director. He has seen it firsthand and he writes about it uh, this week. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Andy, you have seen it firsthand years ago and also have an idea of what's going on uh, currently. So give us some perspective. Is it better than it used to be? Is it still not great? So the Chinese healthcare system is in crisis. Uh, It was in crisis even before the coronavirus hit. And the coronavirus has exacerbated all of the strains and tensions in the system and in some places stretched the system to breaking point. And that is a big political problem for the regime. Well, and Andy, you know, one of the things you point out in your column is these structural problems with the Chinese medical system, you know, right down to there's a shortage of general practitioners, you know, the the sort of doctor that you need on an ongoing basis. Help us understand some of what's underneath this. Yeah, so if to, 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 to wind back a little further, you know, the, the legitimacy and credibility of the Chinese Communist Party has long rested to quite some considerable extent on its boast that it, uh, it nursed back to health the sick man of Asia, as China was once called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most visible representation of that sickness was disease and poverty. Um, and in the early years of the communist regime, they had a system of armies of barefoot doctors who went out and fought infectious diseases and fought very successfully. Uh, infant mortality went down, life expectancy rose. And then in the 1980s, the system collapsed. And the big problem now is that you don't have those general practitioners who stand really at the front lines of preventative health care. So when people in China get sick, Mm -hmm. they go straight to the hospital, which often means it's too late or the disease has progressed to the point where it requires heavy and expensive intervention. And big sickness, even though now 95% of the population of China has some form of health care coverage, nevertheless, Da being big sickness, as people in China call cancer, stroke, and so on, can ruin a family and often does. So what does it mean in a case like with the virus in terms of how people deal with it and China's ability to contain it? Well, it means that the, the I mean, to go to a Chinese, you have to, it's, it's, to, to see it is to believe it. I mean, mm-hmm. the chaos that is a, you know, the, the Chinese emergency ward in, in big cities with people from all over the countryside, you know, flooding in because the, ho- the best hospitals, of course, are in the big cities and there right. are very few good hospitals in rural areas. So everybody piles into Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, all of these big cities. And so the hospital system is already completely overwhelmed. What's happening now in Wuhan is that people with other sicknesses, not coronaviruses, aren't getting treatment. And this is causing huge amounts of public anxiety and and outrage. This is literally life and death. You know, Andy, you have a great anecdote in your story, very heartwarming anecdote in many ways, especially for uh, us journalists about the power of journalism. And, and you know, very briefly, you writing a story about this uh, child who uh, was being treated for leukemia, basically couldn't afford it. Outpouring of donations come from all over the world, including the United States. You tie that back to 
what is now quite a fractious relationship, uh, to say the least. We've talked to you so many times about this between the U.S. and China and between China and other countries in the world, this decoupling that we've seen that is economic in some ways, but it extends beyond that in the case of this virus. Help us understand the context there. Yeah, so I wrote about this kid with leukemia, seven years old, in the Beijing Children's Hospital. His mother was camped out in the waiting room, paying off the bill, which is pretty much a full-time job. Mm. Dad was back home in Inner Mongolia, selling off all of the family's possessions until there was nothing left to sell. Parents uh, end up going to see a doctor in the Beijing Children's Hospital. I was in the room, and she said to the both of them, she said, you've been very foolish. You've blown through all of your life savings, and now your son is going to die. Mm. And so they went into the emergency care ward, picked up their son, walked out, and I wrote a a story about this, which appeared on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And donations came flooding in. I mean, it touched the hearts of so many thousands and thousands of readers. Of course, the newspaper, we couldn't take donations, but a hospital very kindly set up a a charity to to channel these, these, uh, these donations. Um, and I was reflecting on you know, the kindness of particularly American donors to cure, the, save the life of this young child. And comparing and contrasting now with this coronavirus, is, which has you know, yet again exacerbated the differences between the U.S. and China, where now China accuses the United States of spreading panic, of overreacting with the travel ban. Right. And so instead of collaborating on what is a global healthcare challenge, this is driving the U.S. and China even further apart. Yeah, just one more thing, right, after so many other things between trade and other issues. Um, Andy Brown, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Andy Brown, Editorial Director at Bloomberg New Economy in our interactive broker studio. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Equity is definitely down uh, off their lows of the session, but nonetheless, uh, a sell-off on this Monday. Randy Watts, so delighted to have him back with us. Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. So, Randy, um, you know, it's funny. <laughs> Jason, I have to just tell you, I kind of freaked Randy out because I said how you and I have had these conversations that there's going to be some super virus that ultimately, like, is a doomsday for the world and you know ends up unfortunately taking out a lot of people but so randy's kind of like oh aren't you like you know Susie sunshine today um did he say i'm gonna go i'm gonna <laughs> like go go uh, hide in my bunker now but you guys just keep going and i shouldn't make a joke about it because the virus is a serious situation i do wonder um randy how you see it from a market perspective because it does feel like there's a different tone um a different emotion in the trade today how do you see it So a couple of things. The first is that the market was already worried about earnings estimates for 2020 before the coronavirus started, right? Estimates had been coming down in the second half of the year for the first half of 2020. And while this earnings season that's just completing right now for Q4 2019 has gone better than expected, 
estimates continue to fall. People are now expecting Q1 to be down year to year, and they're looking for about 7.9% earnings growth for all of 2020. That number was 9.5% at the start of earnings season. And I think what people are realizing today is that earnings could actually be a lot worse if the coronavirus keeps spreading and lasts longer than they thought. So that means maybe earnings growth for this year is more like 5%. And I think people are re-rating the market as they adjust those earnings estimates down in their head. So is that, I mean, but it's the virus that set it off, right? Because you and I were talking before we got going about, you know, getting the news out of Italy and Milan specifically. That puts the virus kind of on a different scale, if you will. I think the Italian news was a game changer. I think they've got 50,000 people under basically Mm -hmm. kind of curfew or lockdown over there in in northern Italy. You know, it's right near Milan, obviously the business capital of Italy. Uh, It's spreading in Europe in a way they are not really sure how that cell started. And so I think now people are saying, wow, this could be not just an Asia issue, maybe this is your European issue, and then they wonder if it's going to get over here to to our shores. All right, so how do you synthesize this into – a market outlook where you're actually having to pick some stocks and and recommend uh, what people have in their portfolio, Randy? So a couple of things. The first is the technical damage done to the market today is significant. The market's moved through its 50-day moving average, which was at 3,276 on the S&P. We're going to, looks like we're going to close below that. That's an important technical Mm -hmm. break. I think the market will hopefully be trying to bottom either at the 100-day, which is around 3,150, or maybe all the way back to the 200-day, which is around 3,040. Uh, so I do think this is this damage is going to take some time to correct. I don't think this is going to be a, a one-day type scenario. You said we're going back down to 3,040? I'm or? not saying that, but I think we are headed lower from here. I don't think this was a one-day experience. And I think, again, people are going to have to get comfortable with what earnings are going to be this year. I think longer term, though, with the 10-year at one spot 3.7, uh, stocks are still the only game in town. And so I think I think if you own stocks a year from now, you're going to be happy. I think the market was extended. It had moved away a lot from its moving averages. It was due to correct, and this is an obvious reason to correct. Right. The 10-year now, uh, Jason, at 136. Right. It is all about yield. And when you talk about markets, the U.S. market compared to elsewhere still looks better. It does. And the reason is is that what investors are most focused on right now is trying to find a steady and growing cash stream that has a high duration. And one of the places they've found that over the last year or so are in the very large U.S. stocks. And I think as things get, as people get more afraid with the virus, I think the U.S. is still going to be the most favored market. Also, if you look at the dollar today, you know, it's, it's very strong. It's up 4% already year to date. It's at its highest level since April of 2017. So I do think the U.S. is still a place capital is coming to. But until we can get a sense of how big a hit the virus is going to cause the economy, people are going to be uncertain and they're going to err on the side of safety. And safety in big cap stocks, it sounds like. Yes, though the thing that's unusual about the U.S. big cap stocks is if you look at the top 20 stocks in the U.S. market and you compare them to the top 20 stocks of all of the different developed world markets, over the last five years, the top 20 stocks in the U.S. market have grown faster than any other developed world market. They're also tied for the highest projected growth rate 
for 2020 if you look at the developed world. So there is a, it, it does make sense why investors have come into these stocks. It's not So there's simply, fundamental reasons. There's fundamental reasons. It's not simply a momentum trade. And I do think the U.S. equity market can carry a pretty hefty price earnings multiple because of how low rates are. The problem is we've got to figure out what the E is going to be for 2020. You know, we've been sitting around this table and just kind of talking off air a little bit about, you know, trying to get an idea of maybe what the rest of the week will be like. Because here we have a market that sold off. We bounced off our lows. We were starting to trend higher. You know, we're, move, we're bouncing around. And I do wonder in a market where there's so much computerized trading and algorithms that kick in, I mean, how do you see it? Is there a point where... You know, I have had people on Twitter, you know, Randy saying, I'm glad we're going down. I'm going to get in because it's going to be 5% cheaper than it was. And I do wonder how you factor or if you factor in some of those computerized programs that just kick in at levels. I don't see a prolonged prolonged bear market here. Could I see a correction all the way back to the 200? You know, I I definitely could. The market usually has at least one 10% move from peak to trough every year. That would be that would be normal. Right. We've seen that. And we've, regularly. and we've seen that. And so that would not be uncommon. I do think eventually this will be an opportunity for to investors for investors to buy stocks. I don't think it's right now, though. Is gold a buy here? Yeah. Uh, gold looks great technically. It's obviously been very strong over the last year. We think this is kind of an ongoing secular move with regards to it. gold as a store of value versus fiat currencies. Uh, it's probably a little bit overbought in the short run right mm-hmm. now, but I do think gold is held headed higher over the next couple of years. And 30 seconds left, uh, Randy, how much pressure does this put on the Federal Reserve in the United States? Well, the market believes they're going to cut. The market's now dialing in two interest rate cuts, one by June and one another one by the end of the year. I think the market is going to force the Fed to take rates down. It's doing it right now if you look at where, where two, five, and 10-year yields are. So I would expect another cut this year. Just quickly, 20 seconds. I mean, that's what everyone has been saying, that finally the equity markets are catching up with what the bond market has been telling us for some time. Do you agree with that? I do agree with it, but the news has also changed, right? It has gotten more negative. The virus is having a bigger impact than we thought it would. I always love having you here. I mean, we worked out so well in terms of the market action. Randy Watts, thank you. He's Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company in our interactive broker studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.